Chapter 3, no, not 3, chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Have you ever sat at the table with a person that you always try to avoid? (laughs) Uh huh. This person. They always have opinion about everything. And they always have to be right. And then you hit that certain topic. The topic that they always, that's, that's their topic. And, and once you hit that topic, you immediately want to start running. Because you know that things are going to start getting heated. Too heated. Like, cops are going to be called heated, probably. And then... Horror of horrors, you're sitting at that table with that person, the topic has been broached, and all of a sudden, friend number two comes up. And friend number two has the exact opposite opinion as friend number one. And you want to become invisible because you know what's going to happen. You know that friend number one is going to start berating friend number two because if friend number two had only had a brain, they would agree with friend number one. At least that's what friend number one thinks. Anyone ever been there? (laughs) Thank you for the confession, Josh. I'm glad I'm not alone. We won't go into that. (laughs) If it hasn't happened to you physically, it might have happened to you on social media. It's I'm I'm I don't get on Facebook very often, but sometimes I do. I never get on Twitter or Instagram or any of those other stuffs. But sometimes I get on Facebook and I look what my friends are posting and then I look at the comments underneath those posts and I am appalled at what some people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ will say on a web page for all the world to see. Perhaps you're not on social media, but perhaps you turn on the nightly news and you see how news anchors and other people treat those who have a different opinion than them. Perhaps maybe this situation has happened in church. Maybe not. Sometimes Christians aren't the nicest people to each other. Paul in 1 Corinthians, in this passage, is moving from the subject of marriage to the subject, wow, of freedom in Christ. (laughs) Subject of marriage to the subject of freedom in Christ. Something is really not working with these speakers. You, You turn me down a little bit, John? Unless someone is tired, like, wanting to go to sleep, and this is helping them stay awake. Uh, He's moving from the subject of marriage to the subject of freedom in Christ. But as he dips his toe in the subject of freedom in Christ, he he speaks first to to so-called knowledge, to people who claim, I have this great information. How are we to react when the knowledge that we have about life in Christianity is different than the knowledge that someone else has about life in Christianity. We all know that the Bible is the Word of God. Yeah, there you go. The Bible is completely correct. We all know the Bible is the Word of God. It is completely correct. It is never flawed. It never changes. This is what we believe. Now, we all have our viewpoint on the Word of God. And our viewpoint is flawed. We take the words of the Bible and we try to apply them. And sometimes, 
intentionally or unintentionally, whether we mean to or not, we twist what the Bible says because our viewpoint is flawed. We're sinners. I know that I will stand before the judgment seat of God someday and God will say, welcome home, good and faithful servant. But you know that one thing you said wasn't right. Of course, it might be just more than one thing. We're all flawed. Our opinions are flawed. Our understandings are flawed. It is marred by sin. The word of God is perfect. But we are not. So what do we do when our viewpoint or our knowledge that is flawed is different from the viewpoint or knowledge of someone else that is flawed? Let's read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 13. Paul writes, Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Sometimes people are so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge— eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This week, we're going to take this passage into two parts, because there's a lot going on into this. This passage, we're going to focus on the first six verses. We're going to talk about knowledge versus love. Next week, we're going to talk about the whole chapter and talk about freedom in Christ and interacting with those whom Paul terms weak conscience. If you don't know what that means, come back next week. We'll talk about it. Today, we're just going to talk about knowledge. We're going to see that love puffs up. No, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Let's look at knowledge, but before we do... Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the ability to come to your word. Thank you for giving us something that we could study so that we could know you better and know how to live our faith in your sight and the sight of those around us. Lord, help us to, to understand this tough passage and help us to apply it correctly to our lives. Not to puff ourselves up, but to teach us how to love better. Lord, we need your help with that because you know how we act by ourselves. So teach us what it means to imitate you to those around us so that others will know that you are our God and we are not. Lord, as I am up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you might increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Paul says, first off, that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge puffs up. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. He says, Now about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now why in the world would Paul say that knowledge puffs up? Well, it's because knowledge focuses on ourselves. Knowledge focuses on ourselves. We live on this site, this side of what historians call the age of enlightenment. We live in a world impacted by learning. Every kid is expected to be in school from the ages of 6 to 17, and they're expected to have this attitude while they're there. Yes? Some people say yes, and the kids say no. But every kid is expected to be in school and say, hey, learning is awesome, let us learn. Learning is awesome. By learning, I can achieve so many things. And in fact, we're on this side of the age of enlightenment, so much so that parents are starting to be encouraged 
and governments are starting to make laws to have kids go to school as early as three or even younger. I'm not here to say my viewpoint on this topic. We can talk about that another time if you want to on childhood opportunities of learning. Um, But we live in a world where knowledge is king. We judge people based upon what they know or, or, or what they perceive to know. Groups are formed around knowledge. Groups are formed around what people think about the 2020 election. Other groups are formed based upon what people think about healthy living. Some groups are formed based upon what people think about the Bible. All these groups, based upon what people know, the knowledge that they have. The elderly in society talk about what the younger generation doesn't know. Uh, For if the younger generation actually knew something, they wouldn't be acting the way that they did. Right? All this focus on knowledge. If someone just knew something, they would make a different decision in life. But knowledge doesn't cut it. Have you ever heard the phrase, too smart for his own good? Uh Uh-huh. There are some people who are so intelligent, who have so much knowledge, but they don't use that knowledge well. In fact, they lack what some people call common sense. The Bible calls common sense wisdom. Wisdom. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but not have wisdom. It's interesting to note that the wisdom books in the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and a couple others, they never really promote the gaining of knowledge. They don't. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes says this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books. There's no end, and much study wearies the body. This is every senior's favorite verse right there. Much study wearies the body. Knowledge doesn't bring satisfaction. It brings a lot of facts, but doesn't truly bring satisfaction. The wisdom literature instead focused on wisdom. Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for uh, receiving what's just and fair. This thing is not working today. Someone's blocking my signal. Oh, good, thank you. For giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young, Let the wise listen and add to their learning. Let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, for sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Knowledge is information. Wisdom is the ability to discern or to judge what is true or right or lasting. Knowledge is learning how to use a gun. Wisdom is knowing how to use it and when to keep it holstered. Knowledge is what is gathered over time in the study of Scripture. It can be said that wisdom, in turn, acts properly upon that knowledge. Wisdom is the fitting application of that knowledge. Knowledge understands that the light has turned red. Wisdom applies the brakes. We getting it? The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Good. Knowledge sees quicksand. Wisdom walks around it. Okay? Knowledge knows and memorizes the Ten Commandments and other verses in the Bible. They gain all this knowledge. Wisdom actually obeys what you memorize. Knowledge learns of God, which is great. Wisdom loves him. There's a difference. Knowledge by itself is just a bunch of facts. So many people know about God and know God, but they never follow him. Knowledge by itself is a bunch of facts. Knowledge by itself turns into a worship of ourselves because it's what can I know? What can I gain? What can I? What can I? What can I? 
It's amazing how many Bible churches, solid churches with solid doctrinal statements like ours are filled with people who know the Bible, but they're stuck in their knowledge of the Bible. They're worshiping the fact that they know the Bible. Look at me. Look at me. Look what I know. I know all the books of the Bible. In fact, when, when Pastor Peter really quickly says a verse and keeps on going, I can flip to it actually. That was a joke. I can know the Bible and now I know all the themes of the Bible. Look at me. I know the timeline of the end times and I can prove it to you using 33 books of the Bible and I can show you all the different places where Left Behind series get it wrong. Look at me what I can do. Look at me. I know. I know. And you don't. If you were truly someone who studied the Bible, this is what you would believe. What I say, because I have studied it, I know. Knowledge for knowledge's sake puffs up because it focuses on ourselves. What we know, what we have studied, what we have proven true, or at least what we believe to be true, it is us I, me. Knowledge puffs up. It focuses on ourselves. Knowledge puffs up. It creates an illusion. It creates illusion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. When we are focused on knowledge, continually gaining knowledge, we are creating an illusion of who we actually are. There are two different types of elderly people. Hopefully I will not step on anyone's toes. This doesn't look like anyone, does it? You're not looking at that saying, oh, that's me! Two different types of elderly people. There are those who, when you talk with them, they talk about everything that they know. And then there are those who, when you talk with them, ask, what do you know? Those are the two types. I might be overly simplistic, maybe creating two very general generalizations, and I don't want to make everyone, anyone self-conscious now during fellowship meal when I'm going down and talking with you. So please, do not become self-conscious. But there are those people, elderly or not, who are constantly talking about what they know. And every time someone brings up a topic and, or something that they need to grow in or something they need to learn, they immediately dismiss it, they swap it, and they share something else that they know because they walk to school uphill both ways. Therefore, they know things. Others, in gaining wisdom, in addition to knowledge, have realized throughout their years how much they do not know. And the more they live, they realize that gap even more of actually, you know, I don't know. And what I think I know, maybe I don't actually know that. So, when time comes and talking to people, they ask questions and they ask, what do you know so they can fill in those gaps? Continually gaining knowledge, realize that they have not yet arrived. That is wisdom. When we focus on knowledge, we're focusing on boosting ourselves up and we get to a point that all we think about is what we know instead of what we don't know. So we have conversations and horror of horrors, sometimes those conversations turn to belittling those around us because they don't think as we do. It's one thing to say, you know, Scripture explicitly states this. Therefore, I will not listen to any other opinion because the Bible says it. I can show it to you black and white. It says, you shall not kill. Therefore, killing is wrong. We would agree with that statement, yes? Good. Then I don't have to leave. Another thing says, it's another thing to say that Scripture is silent. But based upon my study, this is what is true. And therefore, I will not listen to any other idea because my study is correct. When scripture is silent or ambiguous, that is the exalting of knowledge. It's the exalting of myself. I think what Paul writes to 1 Timothy, to give Timothy explicit instructions on how to run a church, and how to stand firm on correct doctrine, after a lengthy discussion on a bunch of controversial topics, he goes on and says in 1 Timothy 6, 2-5, Those who have believing masters should not show them disrespect just because they are fellow believers. Instead, they should serve them even better because their masters are dear to them as fellow believers and are devoted to the welfare of their slaves. These are the things you should teach and insist on. 
If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. What is he saying? He's saying that there's this bunch of people in Timothy's church in Ephesus who have knowledge. They know the Bible. They know the Old Testament scriptures. They are smart. They are able to reason and think things But unfortunately, they have the wrong viewpoint. And they're going around and picking fights and dividing Christians because they're unwilling to listen to the right viewpoint. They've created an illusion of themselves saying, I know, and they're not willing to listen to another side and to see, well, maybe you don't. They're focused on themselves. They've gotten puffed up by so-called knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. It focuses on ourselves. It creates an illusion of ourselves. And the result is that we are chained. We're chained. Paul is going to go on later to say in 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Did you hear that? Paul said, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but do not have love, I am nothing. If I have sought knowledge for the sake of knowledge, it is nothing. It doesn't matter how good I preach doesn't matter how logical my proofs are. doesn't matter how many courses I've taken or how many degrees are on my wall. It doesn't matter if I can quote the whole Bible or if I can explain a verse so simply that John MacArthur would be jealous. If I have pursued knowledge for the sake of knowledge, I am nothing. I'm puffed up. I've created an illusion of myself, and I cannot serve God. I am chained. What do I mean? It means, well, I am chained. I cannot serve in evangelism. Have you heard of people who walk up to other someone else and say, pull blank to them, you're going to hell. <laughs> Gotta love the passion, but it's wrong. Those people have created an illusion of themselves in their own mind that they are God's gift to humanity to bring truth, to bring conviction. And other people, unfortunately, will buy this conviction and they'll look at this person who's walked up to them and said, you're going to hell. And they say, you are so perfect. And you're probably right, I am going to hell. And I'll never achieve your status of conviction, therefore I'm just going to stay where I am going to hell and be happy about it. Quickly, the discussion has morphed into a, from a focus on God and his values to a focus on the person who is talking. And this person is standing in front of God hoping that the glory, holiest aura of God will flow around him like the moon in front of the sun at eclipse. And the guy is saying, look at me! Anytime we focus on what I know about you and what I know about God, God is hidden. And our chance of evangelism, of actually sharing the gospel with something, becomes nil. It's about us and what I know. Not only can I ser- not serve in evangelism, but I cannot serve in edification. Edification, that means to teach people. In our text, as we will study la- next week, the Corinthians have two divisions in them, and they've got this argument on whether you can eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol or not. There's one side that believes one thing, another side believes the other thing. The one side that says, yes, you can, they're actually trying to teach good theology as we're going to talk about next week. They're trying to edify and lift up their brothers and sisters, but they're doing it wrong. Their knowledge, even in spite of all the good that they're trying to do, the good that they're teaching, their knowledge has puffed them up, and they're focusing only on themselves and what they know. They've created an illusion of who they are and their importance, and they forget who they're talking to. They forget the needs and the hopes 
and the dreams and the hurts and the struggles of those they are talking to. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 11, so this weak brother or sister whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. What a sad epitaph. How many people, professing Christians, have we destroyed by our knowledge? We could all benefit from James' teaching in James chapter 1, verse 19. James 1, 19, James writes, So this weak brother, sister, no, that's 8, 11. James 1, 19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak. When I'm with people, I do a lot of listening. I don't do it as well as I should, but I do a lot of listening. And as I'm listening, I'm constantly praying, God, help me know what to say to build this person up in you and not tear them down. I never want my words or what I perceive as to be right to stop the work that God is doing in someone else's life. God only knows how much destruction I've done in my lifetime, and I don't want to do any more of that. Knowledge puffs up. It does. It causes us to focus on ourselves. It creates an illusion. It chains us so we cannot serve. Does that mean we shouldn't pursue knowledge? No. We'll talk about that more next week. But it means more than knowledge, we should pursue love because love builds up. It's exactly what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Why is this so? This is the part I really wanted to talk about. Love builds up because it focuses on God. Knowledge puffs up because it focuses on ourselves. Love builds up because it focuses on God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 to 3, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Love starts with God as the object. An expert of the law came to Jesus one day during the week of Jesus' crucifixion. He tried to test Jesus with a question. He said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The greatest commandment is to love God. Based upon that command, we get to love others. If we are loving God, love for others comes through. We cannot love our spouse adequately unless we're loving God first. We cannot love our kids adequately unless we love God first. We cannot love the person who we want to avoid in the grocery store unless we love God first. Biblical love is a focus on God. Think what Jesus said in the upper room the night before his crucifixion in John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. A few minutes later, Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. We love God, therefore we love others. Biblical love is a focus on God, not ourselves, not on others. Biblical love shows us God. When we focus on loving God, we actually see him for who he is. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 3 to 6. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 3 to 6. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things came, for whom we live, and there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. When instead of gaining knowledge to boost ourselves up, we focus on loving God, we see God for who he is. And who is he? Who is he? Paul says that he is the creator. Paul describes God the Father as the one from whom all things come. And the Lord Jesus Christ as the one through whom all things come. Both are describing creation, but in their respective tasks of the Father and Son. We know Genesis 1, 1 to 3, describes the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit taking part in creation. Genesis 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. We see the Father, the 
the Son and the Holy Spirit there, the Father, Spirit, and the Word working together in creation. And all creation, the trees, the plants, grass, animals, everything came from God and through Jesus Christ. I love Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God is the creator. He is the creator not just of everything we see, but he's the creator of us. He is the one who spoke us into existence. We are alive because of him, our God, the creator. We see him as the creator, but we also see him as the creator who gives us purpose. The creator who gives us purpose. Paul describes God the Father for whom we live. And he says the Lord Jesus Christ through whom we live. We live for the Father. We live through Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is that God defines us. He gives us purpose. Not only did he create us, but he gives us purpose. I think of what Jesus said in the upper room. Jesus in John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. He gives us purpose to bear fruit that will last. Before Christ, we were doomed to purposeless existence. Purposeless existence, a life without hope, a life without direction, a life that was empty. We see it in so many of the younger generation who don't have Christ. They want to belong to something. They want their lives to matter, but they don't have Christ. So in the urban settings, they join gangs because those gangs will give them purpose. They'll fill that hole in their life. In rural areas, lots of kids will turn to drugs, alcohol, they'll bend sex because those things will try to fill up that hole in their life. It doesn't, but they'll seek it. Some kids will shoot up schools because there's that hole in their life. Other kids will threaten to blow up buses, all to gain attention, all to try to fill this hole of purposelessness. But Paul said this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we have Christ, he gives us something. He fills up that hole if we're following him. He gives purpose. that We don't have to chase everything else. I like what Micah said. Micah prophesied in Micah 6, 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require you? This is what I can do every single day. Act justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. God is our creator. He gives us purpose. He gives us a reach, a deep, rich meaning to life. Not only does God, our creator, give us purpose, but he knows us completely. He knows us completely. I love what Paul wrote in the text in 1 Corinthians 8, 3. For whoever loves God is known by God. When we turn to Jesus in faith, making that conscious decision to believe in Jesus for eternal life, We are submitting ourselves to the one who knows us deeper and better than anyone else. God knows everything. We call it this big word, omniscience. Omniscience. It's a fun word to say. Most people don't use it in conversation. My dare to you is this week, use that word in conversation sometime. Josh. Okay. Omniscience. All-knowing. When God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, he was not surprised by the evil of humanity. He wasn't when he came down. He knew what he was getting himself into. When Jesus willingly allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, willingly allowing himself to slowly be death by asphyxiation and ultimately by a a heart attack, he willingly went through that torture, knowing how evil we were. He knew everything. He knows everything. Knowing that we were sinners, ungodly, powerless to save ourselves, that we were his enemies, he knew it all. He knew it all. He knew us completely. He knows us completely. In spite of everything, he loves us completely. That's who he is. It's what he did. And when we turn to him in faith, responding back to his amazing love, we are encompassed 
by someone who knows us completely and who accepts us unconditionally. This is our God. The amazingness of this. If I could be real. I'm the youngest of my family. Many of you know this. If you didn't, surprise, surprise, I'm the youngest. I'm the troublemaker. I'm the spoiled one. There are perks to being the youngest. Every youngest in the room, you can say amen. There you go. My sister still bears some grudges against me because of things that I got away with as a kid. But I want you to know I was justified in getting away with those things. I was right. There are some dark sides to being the youngest too, sometimes. Growing up, there was a feeling like no one ever listened to what I was going through because they were all dealing with their own lives and there was me floating around. I started believing that no one cared about what I was going through. It led me through a very dark time in high school. And sometimes this lie of no one cares about what I'm going through or no one wants to know still is with me, haunting me in the back of my mind. It's a lie that hurts my marriage sometimes because I convince myself that Maggie doesn't actually want to know what I'm feeling and what I'm going through and I'm afraid to open up and be one with her and saying, hey, this is what it is because I'm afraid that that lie will be proven true, that she will look at me and say, I don't care. That's not who she is. She does care. I know that but the lie's there because in the past, I believe that no one did. What I love about my God is that in spite of my fear, in spite of my sin, in spite of the sins of humans around me, my God knows me completely. And even though he knows me completely, he loves me completely as well. How do I know this? Because Jesus died for me. And the Bible told me that. I like what Jesus said in John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Love builds up because it focuses on God and it shows us who God actually is. Having that focus of loving God and having that focus of knowing God, we can then turn around and learn how to love others. God's love teaches us how to love others. I've already talked about the second greatest commandment in Matthew 22, verse 39. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus' new command in the upper room, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Both of these loves, I said, the only way we can turn around and love others is first if we have loved God and have learned how to love from him. Then we can turn around based upon Jesus' love love those around us. Our understanding of Christianity, our understanding of how we relate to everyone around us is based on the fact that Jesus loved every single person that we see so much that he was willing to die for them. And he knows them better than we do. Therefore, if Jesus loves them that much, so should we. Our ethic, our way of life is based upon love, not upon our knowledge. I think about the Apostle John when he was old. He would be carried around to people's churches because everyone wanted to hear this guy speak because he was the last one alive who knew Jesus personally face to face. So they'd ask him to come be a special speaker. He'd have to be carried in because he was so old and they wanted some deep theological truths to drop from his mouth. And every time he went to someone's church, the only thing that would come out of his mouth is this. Little children love one another. And he'd say it multiple times. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. And then he'd stop talking. And that was it. As Paul said it this way, if I have all knowledge but do not have love, I am nothing. We're all going to disagree on places where the Bible is silent or ambiguous. We're going to disagree on application of Scripture. We're going to disagree on politics. We're going to disagree on health practices. 
We're going to disagree on clothing styles and car choices. But the driving factor between all of those conversations of these disagreements we have should be love. If we cannot show people the love that Jesus had for us, something is wrong. May we never focus on knowledge. Yes, we should get knowledge. Next week we're going to talk about that. But we may never focus on it so that we're puffed up. And instead, may we focus on loving so that we can build up. Today we get to celebrate what Jesus did for us. We get to celebrate the fact that he loved us enough to die on the cross for our sins. We read about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The Bible I like to use, I left in my car. So we're going to get this one. It's King James. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he took the cup. When he had drank it, when he had eaten, he said, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let every man examine himself so that he eat of this bread and drink of the cup in the right way. For he that eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks condemnation to himself, for he does not discern the Lord's body. We as Calvary Bible Church practice what's known as open communion. That means anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ are welcome to join us in taking communion. But if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've never made that decision to trust him as your Savior, and instead you're still trusting in good works that you're doing, perhaps in your baptism, your confirmation, your church attendance, the fact that your family is a believer, prayers you've prayed, or any sort of thing, anything else, if we are not trusting in Christ alone, Christ's salvation is not for us. And we ask that you let the bread and the juice go by. Not to judge you, not to condemn you, but so that you will not be a hypocrite, declaring with your actions that you are a follower of Jesus Christ when you have not made the decision yourself to trust him for your salvation. Please let it go by. If you have made that decision, perhaps today you've made that decision. You've said in your heart, I trust Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I stopped following all these things that I thought could save me. Instead, I trust and believe in Jesus Christ alone. You're saved. May communion be that first act. And go and tell someone about it. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We don't believe that they do anything to save us. It's just bread and juice. It doesn't turn into anything. It doesn't make us more holy. It's just a remembrance because God knew we needed something physical to remember what he went through, proving his love for us. When we take the cracker, we each take one and we hold it till everyone's served, then we eat it together. We do the same thing with the juice. We each take a cup and we hold it till everyone's served and we drink it together, showing that we want to be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus prayed before he died in Matthew, John 17. He prayed that just as he and the Father are one, so that those who believe in him might be one. We prove the truth of the gospel by how we seek to be unified and not hold grudges against one another. One of the reasons why we stop and pray before taking communion is to search our hearts. And we ask God, first we ask, hey, is there any way that I've sinned against you? We confess it and we accept his forgiveness. But we also say, is there anything against me, between me and a brother and sister in Christ? that I need to make right. And then we eat and drink a promise that we will make it right this week because we want to be one as Jesus prayed for us to be one. I'm grateful for the grace of God, as I say every month, because if all of us were honest, none of us would be able to take communion because we don't willingly follow him. But because of his grace, he forgives us and he kicks us in the right path and says, you remember what you said you would do? Do it. May we do it. Will you join me in praying?
Father, thank you that you are our God. Thank you for proving your love to us by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on, our, on the cross for our sins, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Thank you for the assurance of our salvation and the assurance that we will live forever with you. Thank you for not demanding that we have to do anything or jump through hoops to, to get this amazing gift. All we have to do is receive it. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for giving us this ritual that we get to do to remind ourselves physically of what you went through. The tearing apart of your body and the spilling of your blood. Lord, we cannot fathom the amazingness of your love that, that you would willingly go through this for us. Because we're not worthy, Lord. You know that, but we are not worthy. Thank you for that gift. And Lord, I ask that we would never become apathetic to it. But that your joy and your awe will continually fill our hearts and our minds. And that we would turn around and show that love that you've shown us to those around us. Teach us what that means. Teach, it what, teach us what it means to be unified and to seek unity with others. Thanks, Father. Amen. Could I ask Dean and David to come up and help? The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The plastic cup has gluten-free wafers. body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken to show his love for us, celebrating. Let us eat it together. After supper, in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was spilled that we might turn around and love others in the same way. Let us celebrate and drink it together. If you could hold on to your cups, throw them away on the way out, and Brooke, Brooke will lead us in the final song.